So while we can now predict someone's eye colour, height, weight, hair colour, and any predisposition to disease with a, with a degree of error, we only really understand in two, here in 2016, 2% 2 of the human genome. So when it comes down to understanding our DNA, we're all just the John Snows of the world. We know nothing. Thank you. We now uh, move on to a speaker whose uh, genetic code is uh, G-A-T-T-A-C-A-G-T-T-A, -T -T -A. could keep going. Um, it's, uh, in other words, Matthew Sypek, Dr. Matthew Sypek, who is a nephrologist who has recently chosen to embrace the character-building poverty of student life. For a second time around, and undertake a PhD in immunological matching in kidney transplantation. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about a guy called Rudolf Ludwig Karl Verko. So he was um, commonly known as the father of modern pathology or as the founder of social medicine. He sort of brought science to medicine and he brought medicine to politics. He was born in um, 1821 and I might just sort of start by setting the scene in 1821 and what medicine was like at that time. So here's an article from the prestigious medical journal of the New England Journal of Medicine from January 1821, entitled On the Treatment of Cyanactricalis, or croup. And for those of you that don't know what croup is, it's an um, illness that affects young children. They tend to get some inflammation in their trachea, and it can cause a lot of um, breathing distress. So uh, the author, of course, in 1821, goes on to tell us that the, the fundamental treatment for croup is, of course, bloodletting. Now... <laughs> In this case, blood is to be taken from a larger than normal orifice, and he recommends the jugular, just so you can get a decent flow, but children are quite hard to bleed. Um, <laughs> those tiny little veins in the adipose tissues that get in the way. Um, so he recommends that you should bleed them a decent amount in such quantities as to nearly produce fainting. And um, following this, you can measure it to try and get some accurate thing using spoons and teacups to get an idea of how much you're actually taking out. Of course, if general bloodletting fails, you should move on to local bloodletting, and this is where you take leeches, about a dozen to 20 or so, and you place them in a local area, in this case, the back of the uh, oropharynx, to try and remove the blood locally. If that doesn't work, you try emetics, so getting the child to vomit. Um, in this case, that can actually open up that jugular wound and you can lose some blood and it gets a little bit difficult there. Um, if the emetics don't work, cathartics are the next option, so just empty out the bowels, see if that works. Um, and finally, we go for um, vesication or the, the forming of blisters. Now, we all know that blisters are best formed on the back of the oropharynx, but as you put leeches there already, the front of the chest or the back of the neck will do fine as well. Um, he finally goes on to say, so if this child who's come in with their breathing problem has not responded to, to bleeding them out, the leeches, the vomiting, shitting themselves, and then covering them in blisters, uh, in that case you should try a warm bath, because uh, nurses in certain parts of Scotland have found this to be effective. So this is the era of medicine that um, Rudolf Verkar was born into. 
He was born uh, into the Prussian province of Pomerania, which my somewhat tangential research uh, told me is not only the origin of that fluffy little yappy dog that was popularized by Queen Victoria, but also a species of duck, a sheep, and a, a popular market goose, the Pomeranian goose. Anyway, um, he was born into a fairly impoverished family, and, um, but he got a good education. He managed to learn in primary school Latin, Greek, uh, Dutch, German, French, Italian, Hebrew, Arabic, I think that's about it. Um, and then he moved on to high school in which uh, he was quite a noted little kid. His high school thesis was entitled, A Life Full of Work and Toil is Not a Burden but a Benediction. I'm sure he <laughs> didn't get beaten up for that at all. Um, he was fortunate enough to receive a scholarship, a military scholarship to go to medical school, and he went to the Frederick Wilhelms Institute in Berlin. His uh, graduating doctoral thesis there was called Corneal Manifestations of Rheumatic Disease. So it's nice to know that people can, can do dull esoteric research and still go on to great things later in life, so that's reassuring for lots of us here. Um, he got a job at Charity, one of the big research institutes, and it's this sort of um, stage in his life where he set about uh, really his long battle in the defense of the scientific method over pseudoscience and quackery. Microscopes were just sort of becoming popular at this time, and he was also into cutting up dead people, and he used these two methods to sort of systematically uh, investigate the, the structural basis of disease, and earning him the epithet, the father of modern pathology. So we move on now to 1848, generally a pretty big year. There was this sort of Mexican wave of revolutions across Europe, uh, starting in France, as they often do, and then moving to Italy and the, uh, the Habsburg Empire, German uh, states, even across to Ireland. It was also a big year for Verkov. So he was sent to Upper Silesia to investigate a typhus epidemic. Now, I've sort of lauded his uh, devotion to the scientific theory, but he wasn't, uh, he did have his own misconceptions as well. So whilst his contemporaries like Louis Pasteur and um, Robert Koch were drumming up support for the uh, germ theory, he still believed in miasma. And miasma is a great word, isn't it? It comes from the Greek that means stench, but it also was sort of this to the ancient Greeks, this uh, spiritual stain that was brought on by certain acts and could be passed from sort of one member of a family to another and could only be sort of expunged by a sacrificial death. Anyway, the miasma at this time in science was that, that rotting smell that em 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 emanated from, from rotting flesh or, or from rotting food products and caused illness. So Verkov felt that attributing disease to microbes or pathogens failed to account for the social and the environmental determinants of health, and that whilst it was a little misguided, it did lead to a really strong commitment for the rest of his life, um, a passion towards social medicine and the promotion of public health. So we know now that Pasteur and Verkov were, were both a bit right. So although microorganisms are responsible for communicable diseases, we also know that there are environmental factors, sanitation, overcrowding, and many other things that contribute to these epidemics. So it was an important thing. And, and as he says, and I quote now, that medicine is a social science. The politics, uh, and politics is nothing but medicine on the large scale. Medicine has an obligation to point out problems and to attempt their theoretical solution. The politician, the practical anthropologist, must find the means for that actual solution. So he went on to, to sort of really dedicate his life to the politics of improving health, and he joined the Municipal Council of Berlin and then the Prussian Diet, and then he became the leader of the Radical Progressive Party. Uh, he particularly focused on implementing sanitation um, and public sewerage and public health processes. 
But he was a pretty industrious man, and all the while, whilst he was working on this political career, he was also working on his scientific career. Those microscopes, those dead people, and coming up with lots of things that we are... Uh, appreciate as, as fundamentals of medicine today. He's credited with a, with a famous saying of omnis cellula is cellula, from cells come cells. And he published in 1865 this book called, or a collection of lectures called Cellular Pathology, which basically showed the, the structure of cells and that the disease was a disruption to the normal cellular process, and that's manifested as symptoms. He published over 2,000 articles in his life. He, he coined, coined terms like thrombosis and um, embolus. He was also quite fond of the eponym. So any medical students or doctors in the room will know the Verkov's node, this node above your neck, which uh, is often the first sign that, of a gastric cancer that metastasizes to a lymph node above your neck, or Verkov's triad, um, the, the conditions under which that plight of the long-distance traveler causes DVTs. There's Verkov's line, Verkov's angle, Verkov's law, Verkov's disease, Verkov's cell. And my personal favorite, I think, is Verkov's uh, skull breaker, which is a particular type of chisel that you use to get the skull cap off of uh, a, a dead person as you're doing that autopsy. There were times in his life where sort of politics mixed with science. So, um, in 19, sorry, 1859, he discovered and described the life cycle of the trichinella um, hookworm, and this is something that uh, he found could be seen microscopically in raw pork, and he sort of went on a big campaign encouraging people to cook their pork well and inspecting abattoirs. Um, he also, a few years later, would famously clash with Otto von Bismarck, so that, that famous shrewd architect of German unification, over Bismarck's excessive military budget. So, as the leader of the progressive party in politics, uh, Verkov argued that Prussia could sort of hardly afford these $50 billion submarines while Medicare was falling apart. <laughs> this kind of pissed off uh, Bismarck a little bit, and he challenged him to a duel, as you were sort of inclined to do in those days. But being the one who was challenged, Verkov got to choose the weapon, and he chose two sausages. One sausage in which he had impregnated with a trichinella um, parasite and the other one which was uh, not, uh, which is perfectly wholesome sausage. And he said to Bismarck, let his excellency do me the honor to choose whichever of these he wishes to eat and I will eat the other. Um, and apparently Bismarck retracted this to his challenge. Slight disclaimer here that this story is almost certainly apocryphal and it was only published about 30 years after the event, but still it's kind of a good story and it hung around for a while. Um, he was a little bit hit and miss when it came to cancer, so he sort of was the first person to recognise that cancer cells grew out of normal cells, but he sort of stuffed up a bit how it spreads around the body. But his views on cancer potentially changed world history, so I'm just going to tell another little anecdote here. So in 1871, after decades of careful manoeuvring by our friend Otto von Bismarck, the German states were unified under the 74-year-old Wilhelm I. So Wilhelm was a bit of a conservative old guy. He liked Prussia. He wasn't too fond of the new empire. But his son, Frederick III, he was a thoroughly modern man. He'd um, married Princess Victoria, the eldest daughter of Queen Victoria and um, Prince Albert, and had these very progressive and liberal views. And so as he was coming towards the throne, the sort of progressives of the German Empire were very excited that he was going to bring forward this uh, democracy and liberalism. So in 1887, he developed a bit of a, a throat lesion. We're back to the throat again. Um, had a couple of biopsies taken, and these were sent to Verkau, who had looked at them and said, no, 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 it's not cancer. It's, uh, it's just benign. I wouldn't worry about it. 
Everyone else was sort of saying, no, no, let's chop this out, let's take out his entire larynx. Um, he was sort of vehemently against this, mainly because no one had ever survived the operation of a total laryngectomy. Um, anyway, he didn't have his larynx cut out, and uh, Will, uh, Frederick III ascended to the German throne uh, in February of 1888. He unfortunately died of laryngeal cancer. Um, <laughs> in March, two months later, um, of the same year. And his son, Wilhelm II, took up the throne. Now, he was a thoroughly Prussian, bombastic, impestuous anti-Semite. And a lot of people argue that he sort of led Germany down to this line, which created the conditions for World War I. So it can be argued, perhaps, that Verkhaus, if he had have been more accurate in his diagnosis or supported the laryngectomy, that perhaps we wouldn't, we would have had a, a far more progressive German leader. We wouldn't have led to World War I, which led to World War II, and a lot of lives could have been saved. So, um, so the, the third string to his bow, apart from medicine and politics, was anthropology. So he was, he was kind of, he supervised a whole lot of digs in Silesia and Troy and various other places. And he also was um, into debunking the, the racist theories of the time. Looking at, so he did a study looking at craniometry where he measured the craniums of a whole lot of German people and, and sort of disproved that the Aryan race existed. He also did a study of <laughs> six million children in Germany and compared their skin color, eye color, and their um, hair color. And sort of his conclusion was that there was neither a Jewish nor a German race. And this, at the time, did something to counter the anti-Semitism, uh, which sort of built up over time. Once again, though, he didn't get everything right on anthropology. Similar to the sort of germ theory, he didn't really get on board the other major advance of 19th century science, which was Darwinian evolution. He thought that this was a bit of a, a theory that didn't have evidence for it yet and sort of was anti at being taught in German schools. When he examined the bones of the Neanderthal, instead of thinking this is a separate species, he actually argued it was a human that happened to have rickets when it was a child, and then arthritis later in life, and then also unfortunately get hit on the head at some point that accounted for the deformed skull. So anyway, um, he lived a long life and he died when he was 80. He had six kids and um, five of those lived into their 80s and 90s, so he had good long life genes. But, in conclusion, Verka was sort of remembered as the founder of both pathology and social medicine. He, he lived at this time of great change in Europe, and through his tireless work, he was instrumental in creating a lot of scientific and political uh, change in that landscape. So he was a disciple of the scientific method, and he fought against the superstitious and the pseudoscience of his day. And through his meticulous observations, he taught us a lot about the cell, the cell structure, and how it's, its basis in disease. But he was also a political radical, and he believed in progressive democratic change and the role in the state to provide health for all of its citizens, as he argued that physicians are the natural attorneys of the poor. And it's pretty true to his convictions. He, to me, he kind of shows us the essential components that we need to en enact meaningful change, and that's firstly the sort of honest and considered evidence on which to base our convictions, but then also the determination and the political skill that it takes to enact them and, and make substantive impacts on the world. So sure, he got some things wrong with the whole germ theory and the evolution and his misdiagnosis of a simple throat cancer that may have led to the two catastrophic wars and the greatest death we've seen in human history. But all in all, as a scientist and a politician, I, thought, I think he's a pretty bang up kind of guy. Mm -hmm.